have your Bibles, please open them to John chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 15 as we continue on in our sermon series on Jesus' farewell discourse. The text is also printed for you in pages 4 and 5 in the bulletin. John chapter 16, starting in verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of, on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You may be seated. And as you do so, let us go to the Lord and ask for the Spirit's help as we come to his word. Father God, we come this morning in this course of Jesus' words, the, the fourth time that he has spoken about your Spirit. And God, may these words not roll off of our shoulders, roll in one ear and out the next, but may we be impressed upon, may we be further instructed on the wonderful, glorious work that your Spirit is now doing in the world, doing in and through us. May these words give us comfort. May they give us strength, we ask. And my words as I preach be faithful to the words of our Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. People love a good sequel. Godfather Part 2, Empire Strikes Back, Back to the Future Part 2, Toy Story 2. Some of the list of movies that arguably made make the list of best of all time. Now, a good sequel is not going to divorce itself from the original, but rather seek to continue, to build on, to expand on its original source. A sequel will continue what the original began. Most of us who have complaints about sequels, and there are unfortunately way too many these days, our problems are usually the sequel either totally abandoned the original or just went in a direction that was completely off course. And as we step back into now our, our series on the farewell discourse in John 14 through 16, we find Jesus here promising his disciples of a sequel. Part one is coming to a close as Jesus is once again telling them, I am leaving. He's doubling down. He's going somewhere. With each passing hour, that moment of his departure draws nearer and nearer. And rightfully so, this has the disciples' hearts and heads filled with confusion and sorrow. But Jesus promises part two. It will come with the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And the work 
that he has been tasked by the Father and the Son to complete. It is a work that one commentator calls Christocentric, is built upon, and is the necessary sequel to that of Christ. Now, Jesus has already taught multiple times about the Holy Spirit just in this farewell discourse. In fact, this part of our text this morning, this is the fourth time he has mentioned the Spirit as helper and the third time as the Spirit of truth. And such a repeated emphasis should then clue us into there's something important that we need to learn about the Holy Spirit. We need him. We need his power, his influence, his presence, his wisdom, his guidance, his comfort. We cannot know Christ without him. We cannot abide in Christ without him. We cannot endure this world's hostility or bear witness faithfully without him. And so he comes now and tells his disciples, the Holy Spirit dwells within you to continue the work that I have began through you. Which then ultimately he's continuing through us. The Holy Spirit dwells within Christ's disciples to continue the work Christ began through them and ultimately through us. Our outline for this morning can be found on page 7. We're going to first look at the words of clarification that Jesus provides, then the Spirit's conviction and the Spirit's completion. And may the Spirit work to strengthen and comfort us as Jesus points his disciples and us to the God-glorifying work of the Holy Spirit. And we start where Jesus does in verses 1 through 4 with these words of clarification. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but simply highlight a few things that Jesus clarifies for the disciples who at this point in the discourse probably have all sorts of questions running through their heads, all sorts of feelings stirring up within them. And chief among them, I would imagine, is the question, why? Jesus, why are you telling us that hostility is coming our way? Our hearts are heavy enough as it is. You keep saying you're going to leave. Why are you adding to it that the world's going to hate us? And Jesus, why are you telling us this now? Why didn't you tell us this at the very beginning when you originally called us to yourself? Hey, come follow me. By the way, I'm going to leave and the world's going to hate you. Maybe it would have softened the blow a little bit. And graciously, Jesus knows their questions, even if they're not voicing them. And he brings them answers that are both honest and compassionate. First, he's honest. The real danger for these disciples and us today is not death. It's falling away. Listen to what he says. I have said these things, all these things to you to keep you from falling away. This word falling away is the word scandalize. It means to be offended by. Following Jesus to the cross is not the danger facing these disciples. In fact, following Jesus to the cross is where life will ultimately be found. Instead, following Judas after the money, after the security, after the promise of an easier path, that's the danger. That's the warning. Because that is what being offended by Jesus Christ looks like. Trading in what he has to offer for the fleeting treasures, passions, 
of this world. And no, Jesus is not in any way threatening the loss of salvation for those who are truly united to him by faith. That can and never will happen. But he is reaffirming the words he spoke back in chapter 15, verse 6, regarding what happens to those who do not abide in him. He's warning the disciples, you can't play the part of a disciple and then expect to endure the hostility that's coming. You can't hope that your connection to the body, but not the head, will give you the strength you need when the world suddenly becomes hostile towards you. He's warning them against, uh, against falling away, not to scare them, but to encourage them to do what they need to do all the more. Abide in me as I in you. And next he gives them a compassion, a helpful reminder. He says, I, I've told these to you so you don't fall away. And then he, at the end he says, but I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you. On this, Matthew Henry helpfully writes, being forewarned is being forearmed. Whenever we take our kids to the doctors, it's fairly frequently, especially this time of the year, we always prepare them for what they're about to face, especially if it's going to be shocks. Better to have the shock hit them at the breakfast table or on the car ride there than when they're in the examination room. And sometimes it's extremely helpful when the doctor says things like, all right, after the shots, you guys are good to go. Other times it proves just absolutely unnecessary, like the time Ellie bit through her cheek and on the drive to the hospital, because growing up I was the stitches in my family, I talked up that shot that was coming to numb the skin. I was telling her it's a painful one, it's going to hurt, but you'll be okay. Eventually you won't feel anything. Then we get to the hospital and the doctors say, we don't need to do a shot, we can just use a numbing agent. Well, good. Sorry, Ellie, I just <laughs> scared this out of you, but you're good to go. All they're going to do is rub it on you. But Jesus is preparing his disciples in this way. He's basically painting a picture for them of the Apostle Paul pre-conversion. Because it's not only going to be the world that opposes them, the religious and the zealots are also going to be opposed to the disciples. Synagogues. And the fellowship that they contained within them, which was huge in that day, the disciples would be closed off to. They would even be killed in the name of service and worship to the same God. Which is what Paul says he was doing in 1 Timothy 1, verse 13. And the disciples needed to be prepared for this. And Jesus is graciously and compassionately preparing them. And he's also saying, you also need to go deeper. Look behind what they're doing and see the motivation. It's not you they really have a problem with. It's me. They don't know me. They don't know my father. They're doing it because of ignorance to who we are, to who I am. Now, you and I may never face such persecution, but we still need to be prepared for the ridicule, the slander, the open threats that even will come from the religious, maybe even those who claim to be Christians. They will push back. 
they will try to paint us as the misguided, the intolerant zealots, the bigots. They will seek to make us feel like lo- feel the loss of fellowship in our daily lives and our daily relationships. And they might even claim that we are the ones misrepresenting God and what he stands for. And sadly, we are seeing more of, more of this in our culture. And the pressure to cave will only increase. But thankfully, our Savior has warned us. He's given us these words of clarification. He said these days are coming. Even if we don't know exactly where they're coming from, they're going to come. And we can rest and find strength and comfort in our Savior telling us to be ready. And then we can look to the spirit that he has so graciously given to us. Which then naturally serves into our second point. After clarifying for the disciples that not only is the world going to be hostile, but even the religious are going to be hostile. He gets into his discussion about the Holy Spirit and his work. And first up is the spirit's conviction. We see this in verses 4 through through 11. And as Jesus prepares for yet one more teaching on the Holy Spirit, he drops a bombshell on the disciples. I wasn't there, so I can't say that jaws hit the floor, but I don't think it was a surprise that a few of them maybe stood up a little bit straighter. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. He says, it's better for you that I go than that I stay. And now I'm sure the disciples at this point have appreciated everything that Jesus has been telling them, especially about the Holy Spirit. Even if they don't fully understand it or even understand it at all, just the idea of Jesus sending a helper from heaven to dwell with them should have provided some level of comfort. And that comfort would only grow exponentially, especially after Pentecost, when these words would be proven true and 3,000 converts would join the disciples and follow after Christ. But again, it's good for us in this moment to try and connect with the disciples as they're sitting here with Jesus and he's telling them, it's good that I'm leaving. Their teacher and their friend, who they believe, albeit flawed, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, the Son of God, is leaving, and he's saying, my leaving is for your good. They're probably thinking, are you crazy? How can this be for our good? And if we're honest, we can often find ourselves wondering the same thing. Maybe not publicly, we may not even do it verbally, but oftentimes we do wonder if we would be better off with Jesus by our side instead of the spirit dwelling within us. We think we would fight sin better. We think we would be a better spouse, be a more patient parent, be a more faithful witness, doubt just a little bit less. But Jesus here says you wouldn't. You need more than just me by my side, by your side. They needed the spirit within them. 
While the disciples may not fully understand it at the moment, they needed Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected, and exalted at the right hand of the Father and sending the Spirit to dwell within them for them to do the work that he has called them. They needed the Spirit within them more than they needed Jesus beside them. Why? This is where we get into the Spirit's convicting work. Jesus says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And it is interesting that this is the only time in all of Scripture where the Spirit's work is aimed at the world. Most of the time when the Scriptures talk about the Spirit's work, it is either within the hearts of believers or in the church as a collective group. But Jesus explicitly says here that the Spirit's work is in the world to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. His work is not to promote human flourishing. It's not to improve or to better society. It's not even to ensure political victories for whichever political side you want. Dare I even say it is not to make any nation great again, whatever that nation might be. That is not the Spirit's work in the world. Jesus says explicitly it is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. Which then leads us to question, well, what does that look like? What does it look like for the Spirit to do this convicting work in the world? Jesus breaks it down for us. He says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Simply put, the Spirit convicts the world of their unbelief. This means he goes far deeper under the surface. His conviction gets to the heart behind all of the evil and the wickedness that sinners do. And more specifically, it gets to the heart of unbelief and rejection of Jesus Christ. Because his revelation contained in the pages of Scripture is clear. Man has no excuse. He is guilty for his unbelief. And then he says, concerning righteousness, before I go to the, because I go to the Father. This one might be a little bit more confusing for us. But the Spirit's convicting work both exposes the world's lack of righteousness and also the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because the world thinks that it can be righteous. It thinks it knows what righteousness is, that it can promote righteousness. And we can be guilty of that as well. And to that, the prophet Isaiah says, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. I won't explain further of what he actually means by a polluted garment. But on the flip side, Jesus returning to his father validates, or what we professed just a moment ago, vindicates his righteousness. His death, his resurrection, his exaltation to the father's right hand proclaims that he is, that he was, and he always will be the righteous one. He is the standard of righteousness. He is its fulfillment. The guilty verdict that Herod and Pilate and the religious authorities would render on him in a few hours would prove to be a lie 
when the tomb was empty and Jesus would 40 days later ascend to his father, the place where only the righteous were invited to come. The spirit then convicts the world that it can never be righteous apart from the righteous one, Jesus Christ. They need look no further than him sitting at the right hand of the father. And then concerning judgment, Jesus says, because the ruler of this world is judged. Satan and those aligned with him would think that the death of Jesus Christ declared their victory, that their hour had come, that their triumph had finally arrived. But the Spirit's conviction would say you couldn't have been more wrong. Instead of the victory, the cross points to your ultimate defeat. The judgment that they thought was final and rendered against Jesus Christ, the righteous one, would be final but rendered against them. Their hour of victory would prove to be their hour of defeat. And at this point, we might be wondering, well, but still, what does it look like? And by God's grace, we have a tangible picture of the threefold convicting work of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 as Peter delivers the sermon after Pentecost. If you have your Bibles open, I encourage you to turn there. Whereas... Gathered before the disciples, the Spirit comes upon them, the fulfillment of this prophecy that Jesus gives them, with men from every nation under heaven represented, so says Luke. Peter stands up and delivers maybe the greatest sermon in the history of sermons. And we first find him convicting the world, this gathered representation of the world of their sin. In verse 23, he says, this Jesus delivered up, According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says, you rejected him. You didn't believe. You're guilty of sin. Then he convicts him of righteousness in verse 24. God raised him up by loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He says, Jesus is the righteous one. He's sitting on high. And then he convicts the world in judgment in verses 33 and 35. Again, emphasizing being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And then he quotes the psalm, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter's sermon is the fulfillment of this prophecy Jesus gave his disciples in the upper room. It shows what the Spirit's work of convicting the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment looks like. And it also reveals the goal behind this conviction. And that's hearts awakened to their need of Jesus Christ. Whereas Sinclair Ferguson writes, the spirit convicts in order to convert. We need not look any further than the 3,000 souls that would be joining the disciples after that sermon. Where in response to the spirit's conviction, they beg for Peter to tell them, what should we do? And he says, repent and believe and be baptized. And the souls that have been joined to Christ ever since the Spirit's pointing, pouring out points to that goal of conversion. You and I sitting here this morning united to Christ points to the goal of the Spirit's conviction. For if you are here this morning in Christ, he has done that work in you. He has convicted you of your sin, your unbelief, 
He has convicted you that your righteousness can get you nowhere, but the righteousness of Christ can restore you to a relationship with God. He has convicted you that judgment, God's judgment against sin is real, but it's also been poured out on Christ for those who come to him by faith. And it's because of this convicting work that we do things like have a missions conference last weekend where we hear testimony about the Spirit continuing to do this conviction in order to convert, to bring more and more people to Christ. This is why we proclaim the gospel each and every week as we gather here to worship, because we still need the Spirit's convicting work. We need him to continue to expose our sin, to expose those times where we kind of think that our righteousness is going to get us somewhere. We need to be reminded your righteousness will get you nowhere. You need Christ and his righteousness. And so as we come and we wonder how we can respond then, first and foremost, we should daily praise the Lord for the Spirit's convicting work. We are the recipients of it. We are the targets of it. We are the beneficiaries of it. We are standing here or sitting here today in Christ because the Spirit has been faithful to do his work of conviction in our hearts. And then also may we do as we were exhorted over and over again last weekend, pray. Pray for the Spirit to do more of that work in us, through us, around us. To do it in the lives of those we love, some of those who have unfortunately fallen away. To pray that instead God would bring them back to himself, this time in true faith, in abiding faith. Would we pray that God would bring more and more sinners to himself through the Spirit's convicting work in and through us? Finally, then Jesus gets to the Spirit's completion. And on this point, I simply want to draw out what this completion is. And again, like I just did, it's goal. Why is the Spirit doing this completing work? And the Spirit's completion is nothing less than completing the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And while Jesus doesn't come out and say explicitly, the Spirit is going to finish the revelation that I have started, he certainly implies it in verses 12 through 15. Listen to what he says. When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, this is actually a very specific promise unique to these disciples. There are certainly implications for us. But the word Jesus gives here is for his disciples at that present time. Because if after his death and resurrection, Jesus simply were to go back to the Father with nothing more, the disciples would have folded like a house of cards at the first threat. I mean, in a matter of hours, we see Peter's going to fold like a deck of cards when a servant girl says, hey, you were with Jesus. And he says, no, I wasn't. I don't even know him. They would have lived their lives doing what we see them doing in Acts 1 before the Spirit comes, staring at the sky. 
until some angels come and say, hey, get to work. Because as wonderful as Christ's resurrection and exaltation are, the disciples at this present moment, and even before the Spirit would be poured out, would still lack the full understanding of what it all meant. They did not know how it all connected to the Old Testament. They didn't know what it would mean for their lives moving forward. They probably even struggled to remember what Jesus told them yesterday, let alone what happened over the past three years. The disciples were going to need a helper to come and to fill the gaps, to provide clarity, to lead them in truth, and then help them to proclaim it and then record it. And that is the reality of what we see Jesus promising uniquely to these disciples in this veiled language. With the Spirit's help, not only would they bear witness to Christ, but they would understand him fuller, recognize the revelation deeper, and then take these truths, write them down, and pass them down through the ages. Because only in the Spirit's help would they be able to understand and record words like we find at the very beginning of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. How could they write that? Because the Spirit would come and complete the revelation for them. Fill in the missing pieces. Put the puzzle together to reveal the full picture of the revelation of God through Jesus Christ. On this point, Edmund Clowney writes, They received the disciples the revelation that is the meaning and the message of the church. In the Spirit, the apostles were chosen. Through the Spirit, they remembered Christ's words and deeds. Through the Spirit, too, they received the complete revelation of the risen Christ. And we have it in our hands today. We're the recipients of that work of completion. This book that we read from, teach from, preach from, is nothing less than the complete revelation of God in Jesus Christ. This is the finished product of the Spirit's work. In it, we have the assurance that we can, in fact, know God. That we know the way to him, the only way, through Jesus Christ, his son, crucified, died, and resurrected. And we can know with full confidence that he will endure with us and come again to judge the living and the dead. And we have the full confidence that we have everything we need for life and godliness right here in the pages of his word. How? Because the Spirit has completed that work through feeble, weak, and anxious disciples like these 11 men. And greater still, he's preserved it for his church throughout the ages. How gracious and kind is our God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have the helper within us. We have his completed work in front of us. We can press on. We can grow in grace. We can know God and then live faithfully as his people. As we know his word, as it dwells within us richly. As Paul encourages the believers in Colossae. And what is the goal then of this completion? 
While our growth in grace certainly is part of it, the overarching goal is the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of God's people. Jesus says, he, the Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. We don't have a spotlight in this room, though these lights up here might function a little bit like a spotlight. But if we did have a spotlight and we turned it on, what would all of you look at? What the spotlight is shining on? Only the younger folks, the children, would would turn and look to see, where's that light coming from? Because they don't know any better. They'd be curious about who's running the thing. The purpose of a spotlight is to draw everyone's attention to what's in the light. And I understand this is a flawed analogy, but it still works. The Holy Spirit is not seeking to draw attention to himself, but he's seeking rather to glorify the Son just as the Son sought to reveal the Father. There's no competition within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no jostling for position of who gets the spotlight, who gets the glory. They're united in purpose. And the Spirit is united in His purpose to bring glory to the Son. Again, Edmund Clowney writes, The Spirit does not carry us beyond Christ. doesn't even carry them to the Spirit, but points them to Christ. So everything we do then through the Spirit's power is meant to glorify Christ. The Spirit is carrying Christ, putting the spotlight on Christ when we gather to worship. He's carrying us to Christ as we come and feast at the table. He's carrying us to Christ when we walk by his power. He's carrying us to Christ when he stirs our affections for our Savior to make him love him more and more each day. This is how he works. This is his goal. It's to make Christ be known. It's to make Christ be magnified. It's to make Christ be glorified so that all can see. And he's satisfied with that goal. He's delighted in that goal. And he's working that same goal out in you and I. That we, through his power, would glorify Christ in all that we do. So in closing, I just want to offer a few quick thoughts on how you and I then should respond to this convicting work, this completing work of the Spirit. And first and foremost, it's to ask the Spirit to give you life if you have never trusted in Christ as your Savior. Ask Him to do that convicting work in order to convert. To convict you of your sin. To convict you of your failed righteousness in Christ's perfect righteousness. To give you life and life abundant. And second, for those of us who claim to be with Christ, it's to trust in the Spirit's guidance and help, especially as persecution and hostility and ridicule come your way. Ask Him to give you strength, to bear witness, to endure with faithfulness. Ask Him to anchor you all more in His strength and the love that your Savior has for you. And then third, and maybe the one we like the least, ask God to continue to expose and convict you of your sin. We all need a regular dose of the Spirit's conviction because we all have daily doses of sin. We're prone to pride. We're prone to self-righteousness. 
We need him to bring to light what remains in the darkness so that we can run to our righteous and gracious Savior and find his forgiveness and his healing. And then last is to ask God for more of his spirit. Ask him for more of his work, more of his fruit, more of his strength, more of his Christ-exalting presence in your life and in the life of this church. Not so that we get the glory. Not so that people say, wow, you're such a wonderful group of people. But so that Christ get the glory. So that people can look and say, how can a group of people like this be so loving, be so gracious, be so merciful, be so compassionate? We can say, it's because the Spirit's work in us leading to the glory of Christ. Because that is the work that Christ began, and it's the work his spirit continues to work to finish. The Holy Spirit dwells within his disciples to continue the work Christ began through them and ultimately through us. Let us pray. Father God, would you give us more of your spirit? Give us more of his convicting work. Give us more of his power, of his strength. Give us more of his desire and delight to see Christ glorified and exalted. May that be our heart's cry as individuals, as a church, to see Christ exalted, to see Christ glorified, to see sinners coming to him by faith, resting in him, receiving your salvation. We ask that you pour out your spirit upon us in Christ's name. Amen.